Welcome, everyone, to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. I have to say it's an absolute pleasure to have you join me on this journey through the book of Galatians as we continue our Bible study, No Other Gospel. Now, before we jump right in here, I have to tell you that I am very excited to enter into this part of the book of Galatians, because it's here where Paul's brilliance really shines. I mean, think about this. Paul was a zealot for the Jews, right? One who enforced the Jewish law in its fullness, so he was really well-versed in the Old Testament. And since the time that Jesus revealed himself to Paul, Paul has been putting that same zeal and effort and religious study and devotion into incorporating the truth of Jesus into what he already knew as a Jewish scholar. So, as you can imagine, Paul is just a super smart guy. And his ability to communicate and teach the truth of Jesus is unparalleled. Uh, Folks, this guy is a genius, and his words are are pure theological gold. So you have to expect this is going to be good. Now, I also want to mention that we're going to be getting into lesson three of the study guide. This, this first part will cover the first half of, the, of Lesson 3, and then we'll get into the second half of Lesson 3 in the next episode. And as always, if you haven't yet picked up the study guide, you can do so on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. Uh, click on the shop in the menu, and for just $10, you can get the study guide that goes through this entire podcast series, uh, which will be about 16 episodes. And that way you can follow along and track Paul's discussion of the true nature of the gospel with us. And that's really important because of the way that that Paul speaks in his argumentation. It's kind of nice to to track along piece by piece here. And you can take notes and it'll help you reference those things later. And as always, the money that's made from these study guides go towards supporting this ministry and continuing in future Bible studies. Which I also have to tell you, I'm really excited because we have some great ones planned. And the next one in particular, I think, is just going to be incredible. I'm really, really excited and geeked about that one. Uh, And I'll reveal that as we get to, to, to the new year. Alright, so uh, let's quickly kind of remind ourselves of where we've been so far. Uh, Paul has firmly established himself as a legitimate apostle through his calling uh, from none other than Jesus himself. So Paul's not repeating something that he got secondhand, but what Jesus himself commissioned Paul to say. And then once Paul established his credibility as an apostle, he then turned to the credibility of his message. That is, that a gospel which includes the law is no gospel at all because the gospel in its very definition is a promised gift without any strings attached. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that if we attach the law to the gospel promise, we end up voiding the work of Jesus and his death was pointless. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, very strongly worded, and that's because that's how Paul goes, right? He rarely pulls his punches, and that's important to recognize because as we enter into chapter 3, it will be no different. In fact, you could say Paul's even more harsh as we jump into chapter 3. Good old Paul. So, uh, as you now begin to, as we kind of now begin to dive into Paul's primary argument in support of salvation through faith, we're going to read quite a bit about Abraham. 
the reason for this is because the Judaizers were very fond of referencing Abraham in support of their position. According to them, if circumcision is a necessary part of the covenant, which kind of translates into our covenant and relationship with Jesus, then circumcision and Abraham's relationship to circumcision is pretty important. So they, they harped a lot on Abraham and his theology of salvation because they believed that for Abraham and his offspring, circumcision was a requirement of the law that made them one of the covenant people. But Paul's going to challenge that assumption. He's going to ask a very critical question. Is that true? Is circumcision a necessary requirement of the law to be a part of the covenant people? Or is circumcision simply a reflection of the promise that was made by God to save and is a mark that's kind of tied to it? And how we understand the account of Abraham is going to be really, really critical here. Because the majority of Paul's argument through chapters 3 and 4 are made on the basis of the life of Abraham, we're going to jump back a few times into the Genesis account of Abraham's life and, and see exactly what happened with Abraham and thus piece together Abraham's theology of salvation as Paul continues to reference it. So, that being said, uh, we're going to jump into the first small section here of Galatians chapter 3, uh, specifically verses 1 through 6. Now again, for those of you uh, listening along, maybe on your drive, I don't expect you to pull a Bible out and, and risk an accident here. I'm going to go ahead and read this to you, but I'm going to be reading to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So here we go, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, hopefully you can hear the force and the thrust by which Paul asks these questions and his frustration with the Galatians that the pure gospel message that he brought to them is now being twisted and tainted by these Judaizers. All right, so, so let's get into this a little bit deeper and figure out what Paul is so frustrated about and what he's trying to say. So this gets us to question one in lesson three. What does Paul mean when he says that Jesus was, quote, publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, Paul here doesn't mean that Jesus was crucified in front of them. Rather, that Paul portrayed Jesus as crucified when he explained to them the truth of what occurred. Now, this is important because it explains why Paul is so angry. It wasn't as if the Galatians had received this information from a written note or a servant of Paul. This message of the true gospel was given by Paul himself. And the moment he left, it appears that the Judaizers just came in and, quote, bewitched them 
as if they cast a spell on them, erasing the truth and implanting some sort of new gospel. This is why Paul is so confused and frustrated. What happened? The moment he was there, he, he, he spoke about Jesus and him crucified and the importance of what that work meant for the salvation of all people. And it seems like so quickly, in a snap, all of a sudden it's different. It's a different idea. The Judaizers can just so quickly and easily come in and go, well, what Paul told you, that's only one side of the story. There's so much more to this. And so Paul feels like, what was the point, guys? I was there. I was with you. I communicated the, the clear, pure message of the gospel. And it seems like it took nothing to get that idea of the gospel to be thrown away and for you to adopt a new one. And so again, you, you can really hear Paul's frustration here. Now this gets us to question two. What is Paul communicating to the Galatian congregation by the questions in verses two to five? Now what Paul's gonna be doing here is he's gonna be making a proof of his claim to the gospel on the basis of their experiences. The questions that he's asking are intended to get the Galatian congregation to think about how it is that God works in their lives. Is it more consistent with the message of the Judaizers, or is it more consistent with Paul's message of the gospel? Okay, so he kind of asks these questions rapid fire, assuming the answers, so the Galatians can start to realize that the, the idea of the gospel the Judaizers have introduced is completely contrary to the way that God works and has always worked. All right, so for, for our purposes, I'm gonna change the questions a little bit to, to help you understand Paul's line of thinking, okay? So, so here are the questions that he asks. First, he's asking, did God give the spirit to them because they did the right things? And the answer to that is clearly no. That's not how God works. They received the spirit when they heard and received the word of God and believed it by faith. So the, the spirit came as a result of faith, not by their doing, okay? So, so the assumed, assumed answer to that question, of did God give the spirit to them because they did the right things, is no. If the answer to that is no, then he asks another question, all right? Once they received the spirit, did the spirit just kind of give them a jump start and then leave them to work out their salvation by works? The answer to that question is also no. The Spirit continues to work faith in the hearts and minds of believers and continues in an ongoing pattern of helping us to align ourselves with God. This is something we call in the church sanctification. God continues to align us with himself and his will by the working and prompting of the Spirit in our lives. Okay, so, so that, uh, again, no, that's, that's not how God works. Then he asks, so does God work miracles because you did the right amount of good things or, or the proper works in the right sequence? Again, the answer is no. All of that is and remains a gift of God by faith. So if the answer to all of these questions is no, then why would the Galatians or we be tempted to believe that the free gift of salvation is only given to those who do the right things, like circumcision. The essential point that Paul's making here is unmistakable. Nothing in your experience of faith 
has shown you that God gives anything, most importantly, his spirit, by works. So there's no reason to believe that salvation, his most important gift, would come by works either. The Judaizers here are just plain wrong. Not only by their testimony of their experience, but by the testimony of the man they claim to be the prime example of in their belief system, and that's Abraham. In other words, what Paul's going to show us is, it didn't come by works from Abraham either. So the whole premise for what the Judaizers are trying to promote as the gospel is so completely and incredibly flawed. God has never worked in such a way that he gives that which he desires to give to those he loves because they have earned it in any way. That thinking is absolutely ridiculous. It was ridiculous for Abraham, and it's ridiculous for us now. Now, to support this, I think it's really important for us to, to, to jump back and take a look at the life of Abraham. Is it in fact true that Abraham did not receive the covenant promise by his own works? Because if we can prove Abraham's understanding of salvation, and if we can prove that God worked salvation in the life of Abraham apart from works, then the idea that's being supported by the Judaizers that circumcision is necessary is complete foolishness, as Paul claimed it to be. So in order to do that, let's jump back a little bit. Let's first start with Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. Now, you may be asking why we're going back to Joshua to talk about the life of Abraham. Well, in Joshua 24, as Joshua is kind of speaking and proclaiming about the realities associated with the covenant, he gives us a detail about Abraham that's pretty important. All right, so again, this is the English Standard Version of the Bible, Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Now question three gets to what we're learning here. Then it says, what do we learn about Abraham? Well, it's fascinating because what we learn is Abraham came from a family of idolaters. He and his family worshipped other gods prior to God's calling and his subsequent covenant with Abraham. Now, this is significant because what it points to is that when God calls Abraham to be the father of the covenant people, he called him out of idolatry. That is to say, Abraham entered into the covenant when he was an idolater. Now, if you're a Judaizer and you believe that the covenant comes as a result of works, this is a little problematic. 
Abraham wasn't brought into the covenant as the father of the covenant people because he did all the right things. He didn't follow a list of rules. He didn't obey the law perfectly. And God was kind of looking down on Abraham going, well done, Abraham. Good job. You are officially a representative of my people. And so I'm going to work this covenant out with you because you get an A plus for following the law. That is just not the way it worked. Abraham became the father of the covenant because God just chose that. He, he just chose Abraham. He said, uh, you, Abraham. Which means that Abraham's part in the covenant was not a result of works. It was not a result of the law. So to claim any idea that the gospel comes as a result of our works flies in the face even of Abraham's calling into this life of the covenant. All right, now, let's actually start to look at Abraham's life. So here we're going to go to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and verse 7 and see what they say about Abraham's relationship to the covenant. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then verse 7 says this, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Question 4. On the basis of the claim of the Judaizers, what is noticeably missing from the account of Abraham's calling? The answer is any mention of the fact that he's worthy of the covenant God is making with him. In fact, as we read in Joshua, he worshipped false gods when he was called into this covenant. Does this sound like God's promise is tied to the good works that one does? Not at all. Again, there is no connection here in the calling of Abraham to anything that Abraham did. It's simply God saying, this is what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And the purpose of that great nation is to get us to Jesus. Now, this is going to get even better here as we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, and see how this idea of the covenant promise is even further supported in the life of Abraham, because we're going to look specifically at the covenant. All right, so here we go. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're even able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Question 5. How does Abraham receive righteousness in this account of Abraham's life? Now, notice that it specifically says that Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is to say, Abraham received righteousness by faith. It wasn't because he did all the right things. It wasn't because he was circumcised. We know that for certain because circumcision isn't even a thing until two chapters later in Genesis 17. Abraham was given righteousness on account of his faith. We know it wasn't his actions. In fact, if you look at Genesis 17 and the account of the giving of circumcision, it tells you a lot about what's going on here. Abraham had a pattern of not believing the Lord, of not trusting in the promise that was given to him. Now think about this. God calls Abraham out of idolatry and then says to him, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Now the first thing that Abraham encounters on his journey as he he comes into Egypt, he's afraid that Pharaoh is going to take his wife Sarah to be his own and in doing so, is going to kill Abraham. And so Abraham cooks up this little plot. Well, we'll just refer to you as my sister. Now, we later find out that he is, in fact, uh, she is, in fact, a half-sister. All right, but he says, well, let's, let's go with that. Let's go with the reality of you being my sister, and that way he won't kill me. Now, that was based on fear and a lack of trust. By the way, Abraham, if you die in Egypt then God can't fulfill the promise that he made to you. So why don't you just trust him, let Sarah be your wife, and move forward as God has told you. But Abraham doesn't. And this pattern of of not trusting the Lord is repeated over and over again. In fact, Paul is going to get into this, and we're going to talk about it too, as he gets into this this plan, this plot that Abraham hatches uh, with Hagar, right? Sarah and he kind of plot with Hagar to, to have Abraham have a different child, Ishmael. Um, and this whole thing goes south as a result of that plan. But what you're seeing is time and time again, Abraham tries to take matters into his own hands because he doesn't trust the Lord. Which is why when we get to Genesis 17 and the covenant is given of of circumcision, what you're seeing is God interacting with Abraham in such a way that he's kind of trying to affirm and drill into Abraham's head that this is who I'm going to make you into. Now, he does this in, in three ways. The first thing he does in Genesis 17 is he repeats the covenant, right? I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Then he changes Abraham's name to Abraham from Abram, right? Abram meaning father, Abraham meaning father of many. Uh, here, I guess maybe the equivalent would be like, um, let's say that, that I promise you that I'm going to bring you a bag of Skittles. And you don't necessarily trust that promise because days go by and, and I don't bring you a bag of Skittles. And every day I come to you and I say, I'm going to bring you a bag of Skittles. And you're like, okay. But eventually you start going off and buying maybe your own bag of Skittles or trying to figure out a way to kind of circumvent my promise because you don't quite trust that I will actually execute. The equivalent would be is if I started to call you Skittles. Like, hey, Skittles, remember, I'm going to bring you Skittles. So changing of Abraham's name 
is to to actually change his name to the covenant promise itself to try to help Abraham remember that this promise is for him. Then we get to the covenant of circumcision, right? And the nature of the circumcision ritual. Now, this is a little bit confusing for many people because it's like, why, why circumcision? Especially guys out there, you're thinking like, why did it have to be circumcision? That sounds painful. The answer is actually quite simple. Circumcision was the mark of the covenant because God wanted to put wanted to put the mark of the covenant on the part of the body responsible for making more human beings. If he's going to be the father of many nations, he's going to put the mark of the covenant on the part of his body responsible for making him a father. All right, so the cutting off of the foreskin of the penis was intended to reflect uh, right, the, the nature of the covenant itself, to remind Abraham that the promise was that he would have an offspring with Sarah, genuine offspring, and that this would be the beginning of him being the father of many nations. So all of this that's being done, even the covenant of circumcision, is done because Abraham doesn't trust the Lord and has a pattern of disobeying God. So you can certainly make the case that circumcision is not a reflection of the covenant being given by works, because Abraham certainly didn't have the works that would earn him salvation. Now, at the same time, some might say, well, isn't believing an act uh, that we do to contribute to salvation? The answer to that, again, is, is no. Remember that Abraham was called out of idolatry into faith which means that faith wasn't the result of Abraham's discovery and, and will to believe. Remember this point. Abraham didn't call God. God called Abraham. Even Abraham's faith was a gift given to him as he responded to the calling of the Lord through God's word. Faith and righteousness are both gifts from God. That is an absolutely critical point to remember as we next time go into Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, and kind of see what Paul's going to do with this uh, reality of the covenant as being brought on by faith and not by works. That's going to do it for our Bible study time. Uh, again, just really glad you could join us in this. I, I hope this is edifying for you. I hope you're getting a lot out of this. I really love the book of Galatians and really think that it does a lot to help us to frame the nature of the gospel, uh, where uh, kind of this is an important idea for us at Bold Speak as we're talking about what it means to learn and live the gospel out into the world. So clearly defining the gospel is super, super important. So again, hope you're getting something out of this. Uh, now we're going to turn our attention to what's going on in the world. Let's get to the wire. wire. On November 12th, it was reported that comic book legend Stan Lee died at the age of 95. And I got to see him live at Denver Comic Con not long ago, and it was fun to just listen to him speak and hear his passion for fantasy and science fiction in the comic book genre. I think it was important to me because I, like many, grew up reading his stories, but what I didn't realize at the time and realized later in life was that Stanley's characters were about so much more than a man or woman with superpowers. They were about life and the lessons we learn along the way. In fact, so many iconic characters were about Stanley's commentary on childhood and the human experience. For instance, the Hulk reflected on the Jekyll and Hyde personality within us and the potential dangers of letting anger take over. Spider-Man looked at the realities associated with growing from child into adult and taking responsibility toward our fellow man. 
with each character, there was a quest to discover what it means to be a hero with and without power. A lesson that was important to me growing up. There were times, moments, when I felt powerless. I struggled with life decisions and my relationship with my family. And superheroes let me process things and discover the power of my imagination. It opened up an entire world to me, and I can honestly say that a part of me would be very different without Stan Lee's contribution to American literature. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't appear that Stan Lee was a follower of Jesus Christ. But God's work of placing the law on his heart still allowed him to offer to us powerful stories of love, mercy, and the nature of community. As Paul affirms in Romans 2, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. By the grace of God, Stan still knew the importance of love and friendship enough to communicate and teach them to generations of kids like me. So thank you, Stan, for all you did. I'm saddened by your passing, and even more saddened that it appears that I will never see you again. But I suppose that's all the more reason to tell those we admire and love about Jesus and give them the bold speak. That is The Wire. Very glad you could join us. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bold Speak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our channel to get the latest content and information as we release it. And as always, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at forward slash the bold speak. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, I am Anthony Creedon, and that is the bold speak. <laughs>